Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about media science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. We've got a great show for you today as I interview Paramount Chief Research Officer Colleen Faye Rush. Colleen is someone that we've all looked up to for many, many years as she was research leader at VH1, then MTV Networks, which became Viacom, which became Viacom CBS and now Paramount. I mean, she has survived and thrived across many mergers, acquisitions and reorgs, which is quite a feat. It tells quite a story. So Colleen, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you. It's very nice to see you and to, and to be here today. Colleen, let's dive right in. How did you get your start in this industry? Well, my first job was actually as an intern between my junior and senior year of college. I went to Cornell and I got an internship at the CBS television stations, the owned and operated television stations group. And that was my start. They actually asked me back in the following spring to take a full-time job upon graduation as a junior analyst. And I had actually already accepted a job. I had gone through the whole on-campus recruiting thing at Cornell and had gotten a job in insurance in Philadelphia. (laughs) So suddenly I was like, I had to make a decision. Like I didn't know that they were going to offer me something to return to. And I had already accepted something else. And honestly, I didn't even, it was actually not even insurance. It was reinsurance, which is like <laughs> really, really, and it was, and it was the same amount of money. Philadelphia is obviously a cheaper city than New York. I grew up in Cleveland, so I was perfectly happy to work in Philadelphia or New York. But when push came to shove, I decided that I'd love to give media a try and live in New York City and that's what I did. And I started at CBS as that junior analyst. And I've always been in media research since. It just worked for me. I just really have always liked being involved with data and insights and working with so many other functions in an organization. And I've just, I've just stayed with it ever since. Did you go from that first job at CBS straight into the Viacom family? No. So I actually, I was in the owned and operated stations group for a few years. And then I moved to the network group and I was analyzing this new thing called cable. (laughs) And I was in that group for a few years. And then I started actually taking advantage of their tuition assistance program at CBS. And I pursued my MBA part-time at night at NYU. It took me like four and a half years because there was a couple of semesters where I just ran out of money. One semester I was getting married and I just didn't really feel like worrying about exams while I was trying to get married and go on a honeymoon. So I did that at night and I finished up. And then about a year later, I got another job. I went to Telemundo. And it was Spanish language television. It was a completely different type of thing. And it was so interesting. 
I loved it. I learned a ton about the U.S. Hispanic market. And my role was actually very much in the consumer insights part of research, right? I had spent the first chunk of years at CBS working mostly with ratings, some primary research, because we also did a lot of news research back then for the, uh, for the owned stations, right? Because local news is a really important part of the equation. It's really sort of the brand of any local station here in the U.S. So that was really sort of my my start in the primary research part of my career was at CBS. But then when I went to Telemundo, it was a lot more consumer insights research and Nielsen stuff uh, to really position Spanish language television as a very important part of the equation for an advertiser. If you're only advertising in English, you're missing out on a whole lot of amazing consumers. And so it was a lot of educating advertisers about the U.S. Hispanic market. And not being Hispanic, it, was, it wasn't like, pay attention to me. It was like, hey, you should know about this market because they're a huge opportunity for you. So I really enjoyed that. I really like just meeting and getting to know a lot of different marketers in the business and really talking to them through a very different lens. It was very interesting to me and I loved it. After that, I actually went to J. Walter Thompson. I had never worked at an ad agency and I felt like it was time for me to make my next move. And I got this role at J. Walter Thompson and I was very, really excited about it. And it was great because it was just a completely different part of the ecosystem, right? I had always been at a media company, first, you know, CBS, then Telemundo, but working at an ad agency just gave me a very different perspective. I ended up leaving J. Walter Thompson after about a year because I got this amazing opportunity to go head up research for VH1, which is when I joined Viacom. It came out of the blue. I wasn't looking. I think I got headhunted for it and I took it. I felt really bad about leaving J. Walter Thompson. It was actually even under a year. And I was like, oh, that's not like a good look, but it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. And that was my start at Viacom. So I was heading up research for VH1. And that was the period where VH1 began experimenting with uh, new innovations. That was when uh, we had a breakout hit called Pop-Up Video. And then we had a big hit with Behind the Music. And we really leaned into the whole nostalgia thing with before they were rock stars and where are they now and shows like that. And, you know, VH1 was a little bit like the, the big sister to MTV. MTV was really targeting teens and VH1 was really more for people in their 20s and 30s. So we showed a lot of videos and we developed some shows and it was a great, really, really fun, exciting chapter. What was also great about that chapter is that there were a lot of fellow female department heads, a lot of women in leadership roles. And that was also a terrific chapter to be along shoulder to shoulder with all of those women like Lee Rollins and Laura Nelson and Christina Norman and just forging ahead with the H1. So Viacom then bought CBS Cable. So they tucked CMT, Country Music Television, into the VH1 team to, to really bring CMT along. Didn't know anything about country music, had never been to Nashville, suddenly was getting completely immersed in, in that world, which was really interesting and fun. Then we launched VH1 Classic and we also launched Logo, which was the very first channel for the LGBTQ population. 
And that was a great, great piece of business to, to become immersed in, to do the consumer research for. That was also a really great chapter. Then I actually took on sort of a precursor to my current role, which was really much more of a portfolio role, overseeing all of the brands at Legacy Viacom. So MTV and Nickelodeon, uh, really in service of Judy McGrath back when it was called MTV Networks, that part of the portfolio. And that was really where my remit expanded quite a bit and was really guiding senior leadership on how the whole portfolio was doing. As you know, Viacom's changed a lot over the years. We've had a couple of different CEOs. And most recently, about two and a half years ago, we merged with CBS. So it's kind of great that it came full circle, that CBS is back part of my life again, because I'm, as chief research officer, overseeing, like I said, the whole portfolio, which includes CBS now and Showtime and the stations group that I got my very start at. So it's, it's, you know, now we're called Paramount. It's a very big portfolio. We, we've got Paramount Plus. We, we relaunched CBS All Access as Paramount Plus a, year, a little over a year ago. We bought Pluto, which is an ad-supported streaming service, which has been a great, completely different business for us to, to learn about that consumer and how, how much they really like that sort of lean back. It's almost like watching cable is how people describe it. It's a very lean back experience and a ton of channels, and it's the biggest one in the, in the U.S., so it's doing really well, which is fun. So that's where we're at, but that's where we're at today. Viacom went through so many changes through all those acquisitions, mergers, and reorganizations. How did your job change for you and your team? How did you and your team adapt and respond to the constant change across these different chapters of that evolution? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that I've stayed with this company is because the company has changed so much and the industry has changed so much during this period of time that I've always been completely challenged. I've had to figure out new things all the time. And so have all of our teams, whether it was new audiences or programming to new platforms, right? In the very beginning, we were just linear channels. And then we invented digital versions of ourselves, right? Lots of websites and then apps. And then we were getting very much into finding our way onto social, right? Because you've got to meet the consumer where they're spending their time. And that's increasingly in different places and spaces. And so you have to create a version of yourself that's appropriate for Facebook and then Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and all of the places and spaces. And so we've just had to, you know, over the years, I think we've obviously expanded our teams to meet some of these challenges, to, to be on more platforms. We've had to hire an expanded array of types of talent, right? It used to be just traditional media researchers, but we've got loads of data engineers and data scientists. And of course, at the core has always also been a, a lot of consumer insights executives to, to really usher in all of the research to support programming and development and marketing and product so that you know who your consumer is, what they think of what you're doing, what they think of what your competitors are doing, and also who they are. That's also a hallmark, I think, of Legacy Viacom is, has been all the way back to the beginning of when Nickelodeon started. It was a group of people who were making a cable channel for kids. 
And they had the wisdom to say, well, we don't know what it's like to be a kid because we're not. So let's go talk to kids and parents. And that's really sort of the origin story of a really strong consumer insights practice at Viacom over the years, which then when they launched on TV and VH1 and Comedy Central and BET and all these channels, we needed to make sure that we had people who were very passionate about learning about those consumers so that we could not just know what they thought of what we were doing, but what kept them up at night. What was it like to be a teenager today or any of those target audiences so that, you know, everybody, whenever they started a new job, they're like, tell me everything I need to know about my audience or my customer or my consumer, whatever it is that they did. And you need to be able to tell them so that they could make the right stuff. And I would say that the teams have, have, taken shape and morphed and evolved over the years to really be able to meet all of those challenges, to support all of the different stakeholders for all of these different brands. And increasingly, like I said, we've had, you know, we've got many more data engineers and data scientists who weren't part of the equation at all 25 years ago. But when you're running direct-to-consumer services like Paramount Plus and BET Plus and Noggin and Showtime OTT, you've got to stand up a very strong data practice because you're working with a whole bunch of first party data. You need to you need to architect it and engineer it and run it in a very privacy compliant way. And we've always done that really right and well because of our roots with Nickelodeon. And I, you know, those are how some of the challenge, you know, how we've met some of the challenges. And then there's another part of the organization that's very focused on supporting ad sales. And ad sales is a pretty different stakeholder than people that are making content or marketing content. And they're also trying to convince marketers that they should be spending their money in using their campaign dollars and our channels to reach their target audience. And that's another really important part of the equation, of course, and a really interesting one because that's evolved a lot, right? A lot of, you know, it used to just be linear and now it's completely multi-platform and helping marketers really reach their customers on our websites and our apps and now on Paramount Plus and all of our ad supported platforms. Now, Colleen, many women in our industry look up to you. You're a role model for so many, but I know from our conversations that you've also had your role models at Viacom. What's that been like? For me, being at Viacom and now Paramount, there have always been a strong slate of many female leaders from Betsy Frank and Judy McGrath and Christina Norman and Katherine Hauser and Carol Robinson and Seema Zargami and Sarah Kirschbaum-Levy and Joanne Ross at CBS Head of Sales. I, I've just had so many women modeling great leadership, and I really just don't know what it's like to not have that. And so I feel very fortunate that I've worked at a company that's always valued having women in very senior roles, running businesses, running business units. And it's one of the things that makes the company so great. Colleen, we've collaborated together now for over two decades, and I've always been amazed at how well you've managed to adapt to the changes in your environment. I mean, in your case, there's been constant, you know, tension between centralizing and decentralizing all the mergers and acquisitions and reorgs. But 
like many of our other legends, you've also had to navigate through a constantly changing media landscape. I mean, it's such a challenge. How do you navigate, adapt, and survive all that change? You know, I think that no matter what you do in the industry that you work in, whether it's research or any function, you just need to commit to being a student of the industry. You need to be eyes wide open and commit yourself to never stopping to learn. You have to read a lot. You have to say, okay, what does this mean for my company? What does this mean for my function? You know, I suppose in the old days, you used to be able to just sort of get to a certain point in your career and just sit back and enjoy, but that's just not the way the world is anymore. You have to, you have to keep up and you have to, you have to remain agile and optimistic. And I think it's also really important to be a communicative leader with your teams so that they know what you're thinking and what your, what your goals are and what your priorities are and what you're really trying to like help the company accomplish and how research intersects with those goals. I think it's also really important to forge really good relationships with all your internal stakeholders, right? Those are, those relationships are the ones that get you through in and out of every single week and month and quarter and year, right? And that's also where it's really gratifying is when you are working with smart, energetic, passionate people and you're all rowing in the same direction, trying to succeed and help the company succeed. And honestly, that's what I think I've missed the most about, you know, during COVID is just being around my coworkers. And now that we're beginning to get back into the office, it's, it's such joy to just the physical energy that I don't even think I realized how much I draw on that, how much we all draw on that. So I, I, I guess, I guess that's a little bit about how I've sort of continued to to thrive and and succeed in my journey. You've always led what was among the largest research teams in the industry. I mean, I think that's probably something the audience may not know, just how large your research teams have been. And that tells a story. I mean, it's not easy persuading management to get and retain those positions. And there are clear logistical challenges in managing such large teams. So in itself, just the continued existence of such large teams is such a reflection of your success. What are the secrets behind how effective you've been as a leader? Well, I think that my overall philosophy about research in the organization is that it's very important for it to have a seat at the table, to be a part of the strategy team of whatever brand or business unit that it's a part of. And always fighting for that through every or reorg or consolidation or merger, I think has been something that I very steadily have represented. I, I think that research is at its most effective when it is part of the strategy team and not some backroom operation like a drive-up window at a fast food restaurant. And I, you don't want research to be saying, would you like fries with that, sir? You never just want to be an order taker. You want to be at the table where the, the discussions that are being had around business opportunities or business problems that you're sitting there, you're the voice of the consumer, you know everything there is to know about all of the data, and you're turning business problems into research solutions. 
that's a powerful place to sit. And that I've just always very passionately wanted and fought for research to have and maintain that seat at the table. So that's sort of my philosophical leadership point of view. But I think that my style as a leader is... I think I mentioned before, I I try to be communicative, right? I have these town halls where everybody from intern to EVP is invited and I just address what's going on at the company. I'll have a special guest. I'll talk about the news of the day. I think being visible is important to your teams. That's definitely something that I've been pretty intentional about. I think that bringing people together from across the company in a variety of different form factors meeting form factors and meetings so that they can be exposed to each other's work is another thing that I've championed and and framed out and and run because we're all doing similar work but for different parts of the company and if somebody's done something that's you know methodologically very interesting or just navigating a, a political situation that sounds maybe similar to what you're dealing with there's a lot to learn from your coworkers. And I think that, that that's a really important thing to, to pave the way for. I try to be the glue across all of these groups and celebrate what they do and champion what they do and, and, and make sure that these various teams are aware of, of the other work that's happening in the company because they get very inspired by each other. They draw a lot of energy from each other. And uh, you know, like years ago, there was some really interesting research that the Nickelodeon team did about SpongeBob because SpongeBob had been around for like 10 years and they were like, well, we want 10 more. So let's make sure we do a really deep dive into what it is about SpongeBob that's so magical for people who watch it. And by the way, it's not just kids. There's loads of adults that love SpongeBob and always did. And I had set up an, you know, an offsite for everybody in research to attend. And that was one of the presentations that was shared at this particular offsite. And the people that worked at Comedy Central in the audience were like, wow, we, we should do the same thing about South Park because it had been a very successful franchise and we wanted to keep being successful. And you know, that's just one example of the power that you can unlock by making sure that people are being, you know, coming together and being exposed to each other's work and, and being inspired to then go and do something that is going to help the piece of business that they work on. So that's, I just, uh, I think those are some of the things that I've, that I do as a leader that, that I think work and that I also, you know, just, just like to do. What do you think your biggest challenges are in your day-to-day business? Just keeping up, man. <laughs> I just, there's just so much, there's just an incredible volume and there's so much competition. And, you know, the past couple of years have brought the launches of so many streaming services and we're very successful on linear. We've, you know, redeployed a ton of content onto our own, you know, the libraries of our content onto Paramount Plus including our movie studio, Paramount Pictures, making a lot of original shows like 1883, Paw Patrol, the movie, which, you know, dropped in theaters and on the service same day. Like there's a lot of experimenting going on. And and now we're moving into, 
you know, year two of Paramount Plus existence and need to like grow it fast so that we can continue, you know, so that we can overtake the next guy ahead of us, right? You know, Netflix is have, you know, they just had a rough, rough earnings call. Their stock got completely punished, which was tough. The streaming, the streaming space is very, very competitive. So it's, I think, you know, that's one of our challenges is to, you know, is to, is to win there. I think another challenge is, like I said, just the sheer volume of, of businesses and brands that we have and just making sure that they're, they're all getting what they need. And they are. It's just uh, kind of a fire hose all the time, it seems like. So. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping up on everything there is to know about what's happening in competitive, you know, competitively. and All the new spaces and delivery platforms that keep popping up. We also are not just a a U.S.-based company, right? I mean, we are a global company and we're seeing tremendous growth with a lot of the acquisitions and launches that we've done outside of the U.S. And that's really, you know, that's also a really energizing part of of my role and responsibilities. But there's also, you know, there's just, it's also a lot, right? There's there's a lot of countries outside of the U.S. (laughs) to keep track of how we're doing and how it's going. I know that Viacom, now Paramount, was always a global distributor of its content. But you know, before it was different because you were primarily distributing to market players, partners who knew their markets well. But with the global distribution of Paramount Plus, clearly a direct-to-consumer product, your international remit gets a lot more challenging. Suddenly, you're not just working with partners in other markets. Now it's your responsibility to drive the key insights that drive that distribution to consumers in all these markets around the world and and in these markets that are entirely different from one another and extremely complex. I mean, this must be a huge challenge for your research team. It is. And so there's a lot of market sizing exercises that we've done in the past couple of years to understand what the opportunity is and how we want to tackle that while we're also, you know, running, we own a bunch of free to air channels. We, like you said, have our cable brands exist in a whole bunch of other countries. So trying to optimize all of those businesses in all of these different countries where there are also very vibrant, very evolving, you know, fast evolving uh, video marketplaces in all of those countries. So we have great teams that are that are focused on international for us. So that's the good news. What do you see as the biggest challenges for our industry in the immediate future? I think right now consumers are are trying to figure out what's what's the best way for them to have access to what they want to watch, right? We know a lot of people are reconsidering whether or not they want to have a full-on cable subscription. And there's people that are cutting the cord and then getting something like YouTube TV a virtual MVPD and stacking a bunch of uh, a bunch of streaming services. And there's so many more just in the past couple of years. And so consumers are, I think some of them are feeling like this is amazing. And some of them are feeling like this is overwhelming and the prices keep changing. And, you know, it's a very dynamic space. And so I think that the biggest challenge for all of us right now is to make sure that the consumer feels really crisp and clear about why they should continue to want to watch the shows on our channels in a linear fashion subscribe to things like Paramount Plus and BET Plus and Showtime 
and it's just very competitive. And I think that there's, you know, there's confusion. And I think, you know, helping them through that confusion is the name of the game right now. Now, you were a founding member of SIM, the Coalition for Innovative Media Measurement, a fantastic opportunity for competing networks to collaborate around larger issues that they hold in common. You know, so SIM is an organization that has gone through its own change and its own evolution. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experiences with SIM. Sure. You know, SIM started, I, I actually don't know what year it started. <laughs> it's, it's been around for a while, but, you know, worked very closely with Alan Wurzel, Kate Serkin, and Dave Poltrack, and another people to you know, we, we felt as though we needed to get everybody to participate in experimenting with different smaller companies in the measurement space because we wanted for there to be more thoughtfulness and innovation because we could see that linear television was by no means the only way that people, the only means by which people were watching video content. And we needed to understand those behaviors and be able to monetize them, which meant we needed to measure them. And we just did not feel like there was much innovation in the space. And so we just formed the formed SIM and Jane Clark, we hired Jane Clark to run it. And a ton of really great work has come out of SIM and they actually more a few years ago tucked SIM inside ARF, the Advertising Research Foundation. Um, and now John Watts leads it. And we're still incredibly relevant and vibrant and doing um, some really exciting projects every single year. The measurement space is, you know, it's complicated. Like I said before, there's all these places and spaces that consumers can spend their time and do. And we're trying to make sure that we are taking advantage of, of those places as ad platforms as well. And so I think that, you know, by no means am I alone. There's loads of companies that are, that are you know, members of SIM and are very active in, in, in all of these projects and subcommittees and things like that. You know, and now more recently, we're moving into really trying to stand up a multi-currency future, we call it, right? Where depending on a marketer's goals, they can work with non-Nielsen data to, to plan and monitor and post their, their campaign. And we're seeing a lot of openness from agencies and advertisers around this. And I think it'll take time, but it's really interesting. There's you know, there's, there's some really interesting ways of accessing, thinking about data and personifying it. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting space. And so we're very active as a company. Um, and then of course, SIM is, is an important part of the equation there to, to help pull some things apart, find out where there are, where there's noise, explore different types of approaches to data and, some of it's like super technical and I'm really glad that there's other people that, can, that are going to be folks that help me to focus on it. Cause you can't do it all by yourself. Like this is the kind of stuff that, that really benefits from lots of different types of 
points of view coming together to, to talk about this stuff and work through it. You've long been a champion for new ad formats, even before new ad format research was really cool and hip. <laughs> what have you learned over the years about innovation in ad formats? I think that Legacy Viacom always did uh, a lot of experimenting to, you know, to try to get people to watch the whole commercial pod, got involved in doing a lot of branded entertainment and sponsorships for big tent poles like the VMAs and award shows to, to really embed a brand into a show in a way that made it unmissable, right? Not skippable when DVRs came um, in the very first place. And, you know, you, you walk a fine line with that stuff, right? Because there are certain executions of it in the early days that really bothered consumers. And I, you know, that was half the battle was, was to, to make sure that we were ushering that type of research into the equation to understand, were we, are we doing this well? <laughs> Is this a good idea or a, a good idea executed poorly? Uh, there's a whole lot of different ways and times that things can go sideways when you're when you're experimenting with ad formats. And then, of course, in the digital space um, and in social, there's you know those are those are amazing sandboxes that uh, offer all of us the opportunity to come up with even more ways of advertising and connecting with consumers. You know, partnering with marketers. And you know, I think that my favorite is when we do sponsorship. I think that's where the most creativity has happened. Some of the stuff that we've done with Pepsi over the years inside the VMAs, uh, some of the things that the Kids' Choice Awards have done with like some of the consumer packaged goods brands. That's where the, the, the people that are in, in our, you know, the integrated marketing groups and research forge terrific partnerships to, to really sort of find out you know, where you can take some of these things. And consumers definitely remember brands better when you, when you really take those kinds of creative approaches. It sort of delights them oftentimes. And it's, it's not a typical you know, sort of ad. So that's been some fun stuff over the years. Over the past few years, there's been a real change in the research dynamic of our industry with a much stronger presence of data science and data analytics. Now, you've been a really strong bridge between this data science community and your organization and more traditional consumer insights researchers. How have you been so effective in bridging these cultures? Well, that's a good question. I think that there's actually, you know, a ton of data science and data engineering that takes place when you're running a massive centralized brand tracker for a portfolio of brands, right? You've got the consumer insights leads who are thinking hard about what to include in the questionnaire, how to ask questions in a way that, that people are remembering and thinking about the brand properly. For instance, Pluto. Are they thinking of the planet <laughs> or are they thinking of the free ad supported streaming service when you're asking them about Pluto, like doing a lot of verified awareness types of questions in certain places. Anyway, those folks are partnering with our data engineers and data scientists in the construction of an instrument. And then the engineers and the scientists are creating ways of extracting data and also building apps as front end for the consumer insights leads to then pull the data back out. So it, it really is this hand and glove partnership 
between two very different types of researchers, but they're all like working on the same product. And they're, you know, they're collaborations that never really needed to exist because we always farmed out a lot of our research. But when you take some of it in-house is where you really are getting these different types of researchers to, to work together. And they have a really strong appreciation for what they each bring to the table, and uh, which is great to see. And you know, when when something breaks, there's that the partnership paves the way for people to feel incented to fix it uh, because they know other people are relying on them. And it's another nice thing to, to when you're bringing groups together. But I think also there's always been the quest, and I think it's always very important. You know, when you're developing people from being more junior to becoming more senior, you have to be very good at synthesizing data from different inputs, right? You can't answer a question or address an issue by only looking at one thing. If you've got five things that can help you create an informed, like, here's everything you should know about this before we figure out what our next move is. It shouldn't be based on just one data set if you've also got some consumer attitude stuff that you've gathered yourself or that you, you know, maybe you license some stuff. You know, you really need to be able to synthesize things across a variety of inputs And I think that's also what makes for successful researchers or people that are very good at doing that type of synthesis and communicating it in a a way that your stakeholders feel confident in making decisions and building strategies. And, and, And that's also, I think, what cements research having a seat at the table, at the strategy table. All right, Colleen, we're down to our final question, which is something we ask of all of our guests. So here you go. What advice would you give to this new generation of media researchers? I probably I have a few pieces of advice. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, so I think that one of them is be a student of the industry that you're a part of so that you, you know, you're reading and know what this company and competitive companies are doing what they're saying in their earnings calls, what their stated strategies are, how they're progressing, uh, because having that worldview makes you much more valuable in your job. Another one is don't just tell me the what, tell me the so what, and you got to be able to do it in email format that is as big as an iPhone screen, because nobody's going to read very far down. You have to have, you have to have the ability to concisely communicate well. That's not something that I take for granted. And the people who are really good at it are valuable. I think another one is to not keep people waiting. No news is not good news. When you've been asked to do something, you need to keep people updated about how things are coming along because I think that that just gives people confidence that you're good at what you're doing and you're on it. I don't know. Those are just a few of the things that I think are important to doing well. Thanks so much, Colleen. What an exciting career. It has been a great ride and I feel very fortunate and I hope I just get to keep, keep going because I'm loving it. And I, you know, I just think this is such an incredibly interesting industry and the people are amazing and it keeps, it keeps challenging me. And I'm just, I'm just uh, excited to, to see what comes next. Well, thanks again, Colleen, for sharing And thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Remember to subscribe or follow this podcast series so you don't miss an episode. Tell your friends and colleagues about us 
and share your feedback with us. And stay tuned at the end of this episode for more information about media science. Otherwise, I'm Dr. Dwayne Veron, CEO of Media Science, thanking you for your company today. Don't miss our next exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. Thanks again. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by media science. Media science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with media science. Learn more at mediascience.com.